Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And we resume in Perak Yud Pasuk Kafhei, which said we're going through the uh, genealogy that gets us from the flood to Migdal Bava, which is coming up very soon. And we're going through the B'nai Shem, the sons of Shem, having done the sons of Ham and the sons of Yafet. And in Pasuk Kafhei, we said there was somebody called Aver who had two sons, and he gave them names, which were significant. And the first one's called Peleg, because in his times, his days, the earth was divided, a reference to what's going to happen in Migdal Bava, which we're going to get to very soon. Shem Achiv Yaktan. And the name of his brother was Yaktan. And we talked last week about what Rashi said about Peleg, so we won't do that again. But Rashi, at the end of the Pasuk on Yaktan, says, Shahaya Anav Umaktin Atzmo. He was humble and he made himself small. So Rashi saying, just as Peleg was a name with significance, so Yaktan was a name with significance. And we also said that we can see that Peleg. Uh, the implication is that Peleg was a good guy who reacted against the generation who were building the tower. And that fits with Yaktan also being a good guy, that he is described as Katan because he's Maktin Atzmo, because he makes himself small. And continues Rashi, Therefore he merited to raise up all these families because from Kaf Vav, Kaf Zayin, Kaf Chet, Kaftet um, lists a number of families. Um, I forget how many it is. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Kanainahara. Um, he had thirteen uh, sets of descendants. And Rashi says there was a reason he had 13 that fits in with him being Yaktan. And perhaps the reason Rashi says that is because of the last part of Pasuk Kaftet, where it says, Kol Eila B'nei Yaktan, which he doesn't say anywhere else. Now, uh, it lists lots of other people who had a number of children, and it doesn't say Kol Eila B'nei so-and-so. But it does in this case, and perhaps that is what drives Rashi to say there was a significance in the word B'nei Yaktan. The Torah tells us they were B'nei Yaktan, even though we can read that for ourselves, because there's something special about Yaktan having lots of children, which fits in with the name that Rashi has explained. Okay, the last thing that Rashi says before we get to the tower is in Pasuk Kavav, where one of the sons of Yaktan has the name Chatzar Movet, which is an interesting name. And Rashi says, Al Shem Makomo. This is named after his place. And then he says, Divrei Agada. This is the words of Agada. It comes from Breshit Rabbah. Why does Rashi say that? What's Rashi doing? So the significance of Chatzar Movet is unlike pretty much every other name, except maybe Peleg and Yaktan, it means something. What does Chatzar Movet mean? Courtyard of death. Not very nice, really. And they, uh, in the Midrash, it says it was where all the poor people gathered because they were close to death. So perhaps Rashi spells it out, and he says, this is a reference to the place because it has a meaning. It means a place. It means a chatzar mavet, a courtyard of death, whatever that implies. Unlike, I, I'm going to say nervously, all the other names in this parak, which don't mean something in particular. But it does actually fit with what Rashi just did. He explained the meaning of Peleg. He explained the meaning of Yaktan. And he explains the meaning of chatzar mavet because they all have a significance, unlike all the other names. Okay. Now we're ready to go on to Perak Yud Aleph. So we actually I should read Pasuk Lamad. And the Pasuk Lamad says, And their habitation was from Mesha when you go towards Safra, the mountain of Kedem. And uh, there's a reason I read that out. We'll come back to that very soon. That's the end of the B'nai Shem, which itself is the end of the B'nai Noach. And we're ready for the next chapter in human history, which is, starts in Perak Yud Aleph. And it starts, this is, the first nine Pesukim is the story of Migdal Lavel. And it's certainly worth noting that the story of the flood takes about three chapters. But the story of Migdal Lavel, which is 
also very, very impactful and very, very seminal in terms of the subsequent nature of human history uh, in many, many ways. And perhaps we can say that Abraham Avinu comes out as a reaction to Migdal Baval, etc., etc. Yet it's just discussed in nine pesukim. And in those nine pesukim, there is something missing. Um, there are two, three perhaps, occasions in the Torah where something goes horribly wrong, but we don't really know what it is. Anyone like to guess what the other two occasions are? Um, yeah, I think we do know what they did. I mean, it's a bit, okay, you can say it's not a fair question. But there's two things which are both described very briefly. Something went wrong, not on the scale of this, and we don't really know what went wrong. Uh, I wasn't thinking of that one. Getting drunk is a pretty wrong thing to do, I suppose. But what, what, sorry, what is we Han don't know what actually Ham did to him. Did, yeah. Okay, all right. I think I, you're proving by your <laughs> observations that my question is a little bit vague to be, so as to be unfair. I'm thinking of Nadav and Avihu. Mm. What did they do wrong? Fire. Okay, yeah, although it's fine. Oh, okay, I'll come back to that. And even though actually with Nadav and Avihu, it does say they brought Eshazar, which mm. they had not been commanded to bring. And the other one is the most famous, and everyone thinks they know the whole story, and that is Moshe hitting the rock. Mm. You're going to say that? So why didn't you say it? I wanted to clarify the question. Okay. So we don't actually know what Moshe did wrong. And the third example, going out of order, is this one. In Migdal Bavos, clearly something was wrong, but it's not clear what was wrong, which is why the Meforshim have a field day in each of the three cases, and you get lots and lots of different answers as to what it was they were doing wrong. So Rashi uh, gives his answer uh, in, by way of explaining the first pasuk. But it's worth noting that this very, very important event is described very briefly, and it really isn't clear what they did wrong. So it says in Perak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, Vayihi chal ha'aret safa achat udvarim achadim. And it was all the world was one language, and achadim is something to do with one or ones or a unity in the plural of words. Um, just by the way, Rav Hirsch makes a difference between Safa and the Varim um, and Lashon and look there for a fascinating exposition, but that's not Rashi. So Rashi understands Safa meaning language and he says on Safa Achat, Lashon HaKodesh. The one language they spoke was the holy tongue, i.e. Hebrew. Baruch Hashem, we live in a generation where Hebrew is now again the language of the Jewish people. I think we're living in a time when, uh, for the first time in 2,000 years, not just, is, not just that Hebrew has been revived as the language of the state of Israel, but Hebrew is the common language of the Jewish people across the world. It used to be Yiddish and various other um, Jewish borrowed languages. Now it has returned to being Hebrew. Now, why does Rashi say that that was the Sfa'achat, that was the one language. Well, one answer is because it must have been, because the world was created with Lashon HaKodesh. How do we know that? Because Rashi's already said in relation to... the creation of the woman in Perak Bet Pasuk Kaf Gimel. What happened there? If you look at Perak Bet Pasuk Kaf Gimel. So Adam has been created. He got lonely, but fortunately a Eza Kinegdo was created for him. And in that Pasuk it says, Adam zot hapam This is why she's called Isha, because she was taken from Ish. And Rashi says there, Lashon Lashon, Mikan Shenivra Ha'olam Balashon HaKodesh. From here we see that the world was created with the holy language, with Hebrew. Because otherwise it wouldn't make sense to say she's called Isha because she comes from Ish. There's something fundamental about these words, and of course it only makes sense in Hebrew. So a simple answer to why Rashi is saying what he says is, between then and now, there's no chance for an alternative language to be created. And therefore, just as then the world was created with Hebrew, if the Torah says that they were still speaking one language, it must still be Hebrew. There's also a suggestion that Rashi's telling us 
um, a little bit like he said there in a sense, that Hebrew is fundamental. Hebrew is not just like any other language which people happen to develop. When you talk about lechem, lamad chet mem, doesn't, it's not just the word that we pick to represent bread, but it tells us the essential nature of bread. I think you have to get a little bit Kabbalistic to understand why Lam Mem tells you the essential nature of, me, of bread. I'm not sure myself. But therefore, the people are speaking the essential language that tells them all about the world, which is why it's important for Hashem to frustrate their plans. Uh, spoiler alert, you know what's going to happen. Hashem's going to frustrate their plans. <laughs> he has to take away their language. He has to take away Lashon HaKodesh because that gave them a tremendous understanding and empowered them to do what they wanted to do. Okay, Devarim Achadim. Now, what does this mean? It's a strange phrase. Um, first of all, we've already covered their linguistic ability by telling us that Safar Achat, they had one language. So why do we need to know something more about Devarim? Question one. Question two, what does Achadim mean? I, as I translated it, I got in trouble, deliberately, because Echad means one, Achadim means ones, and Devarim Achadim means lots of one words, etc. It, it, it's, it's very, very problematic, which is why Rashi is going to explain. Uh, what's interesting is Rashi is going to give three, depends how you count them, three different interpretations of Devarim Achadim. So, let's look at Rashi. Devarim Achadim, Ba'u Ba'etza Achat. They came with one plan. Va'omru, and they said... So, that's all we need to do, first of all. What is Rashi? How is Rashi understanding Devarim Achadim? One set of words, or one united set of words. Eitza Achat. Devarim Achadim is Eitza Achat. Va'omru, what was this Eitza Achat? What was this one plan? Va'omru, and they said, Lo kal hemenu shiyavur lo et elyonim. He has not the right, that's lo kal hemenu, but he should choose for himself the upper worlds. We will go up to heaven and we will make war against him. So who's him? God, Hashem. Okay, so they are pretty bad. This is pretty uh, heretical, if you like. This is pretty anti-Hashem. And the Eitzah Achat, it's got two parts to it. Number one, the problem. Number two, the solution. The problem is that Hashem has not got the right, they say, to choose the upper worlds for himself. We have a right to that as well. And therefore, we will go up and we will fight with him. So some want to say, by the way, this is clearly an absurd idea. And what is telling us is it's what the leaders of the generation said to the people, the plebs, the, the workforce, to convince them to do the work. But they knew, just as we know, it's absurd that you don't go up to heaven to fight God. Whether, that, whether they meant it literally or whether they went, meant it as an excuse, that's what they said. Now, the slight problem with that is that it still hasn't really explained what the Devarim are. It said, achat, but it doesn't really relate to the Devarim. Which is why the muscular David says we need a second explanation. So then it says, It's against, that's how I'm translating, the single one of the world. Who's the single one of the world? Hashem. Now, it's not clear if this is a second reason altogether, a second interpretation, or a further explanation of the first one, because it does actually look, work very well together. Now, it says Devar Acher, which is pretty conclusive that it's another explanation, but it doesn't deviate very much from the first explanation. The first explanation is, we'll go up to heaven to fight against God. And the second word is, Al Olam. It's against the unique one of the world. Um, sorry, why did I pause? Um, so... The first idea is obviously also against God. Um, but the second one, what is different about the second one, I'm sorry, I didn't make this clear before. What is different about the second one is the explanation of the word achadim. Sorry, it's not really focusing on Devarim. It's focusing on the word achadim. Um, how did we translate achadim according to the first explanation? Ba'u ba'itza achat. One idea, one plan. How do we can't translate achadim according to the second explanation? 
Hashem. Well, that's what it refers to, but how do you translate the, the word? The oneness, the uniqueness, the unity, if you like. So it's a different understanding of Achadim. Obviously, it's got the same root, which is one unified uni- unity, but it's a different approach. The first one is it's one united plan. And the second one is you can't say God is united because there's only one God. It's the unity, the essential oneness of God. So it's two ways of understanding Achadim. Rashi's not particularly satisfied, I think, with either. Yes? Grammatically, does Achadim work to be... Does Achadim work to be oneness? Right? It seems to be more... No, it doesn't. Oh, oh sorry. The problem is the plural. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the word Achadim is, 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 is not really a word that we can understand. Um, I'm not sure how often it appears in Tanakh. Um, I, would, I can't say it doesn't appear elsewhere because I certainly haven't checked. Um, but it's, uh, it's a word that certainly doesn't make a lot of sense. Because if it's achad, it can't be achadim. You can't have one in the plural. That's really the problem. You can't have one in the plural. So does it mean yechido shal olam? Not in the most simple pshat, I would suggest on behalf of Rashi. But we're beyond pshat. You know why we're beyond pshat? Because the pshat doesn't make sense. So we're going to have to go into drush. We're going to have to go into a midrashic analysis. So when we're in the realm of midrash, we can not be quite so precise about the meaning of the word. And that's why the second explanation is we'll take a chadim and refer it to the yichudo shal olam, which is not plural in any way, of course. Very, very much not plural. Then he says, another explanation. Um, of, well, there's two girasot, there's two readings. Um, in my book, I've got both. Devarim achadim, and in other versions, it says devarim chadim. But that's really the key. It's devarim chadim, what does chad mean? One. Okay, no. Divisional? No, it's nothing to do with that. Sharp, very good. It means sharp words. So the third attempt to explain achadim goes in a different direction altogether. Nothing to do with one. Drop the aleph and just look at the chet dalet. And by the way, now the plural works. Because devarim achadim, it's plural, the, the adjective matches the so noun. Do yeah, <laughs> I would say, but Derek Drush, sometimes we can do that. Okay? And also, I would say, and I, I'm, I'm on very shaky ground here, I may be completely wrong, that Aleph is one of those that occasionally we can drop. Okay? We can't just drop letters willy-nilly, but Aleph is, is sort of sometimes extra. Or sometimes you see words with the Aleph, without the Aleph, so Aleph is a little bit dispensable. But I, I'm sure that the starting point is we can't explain it in Pshat, therefore we're explaining it in Drush, which means the rules don't work quite so strictly. Now, what are the Devarim Chadim? So it's nothing to do with one. It's now sharp words. Omru, they said, Achat le'elef v'sheish me'ot v'chamishim v'sheish shanim. Once every 1,656 years, Harakia mitmotet, the heavens shake as they did at the time of the play oh sorry of the flood we will come and we will make for it i.e. for heaven supports we like put in girders okay what's the significance of 1656 that's the time of the flood? That's the time of the flood. If you add up all the years from Adam to Noah, it works. But how can it be once in 1656 if it's only happened once? Like, like yeah. they're, they're worried that in the future the world is so precise that it'll repeat the okay. same cycle? I don't want to say something which sounds like I'm anti-science. I'm not anti-science at all. But it's funny how sometimes scientists, actually maybe social scientists, I'm anti-social science. It's not a proper, it's not a proper science. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> they do seem to extrapolate from very, very few data points. Have you ever met social scientists or even physical scientists who do an experiment once and say, ah, this, this proves the theorem? So uh, you, you're right. It wasn't really a very thorough scientific method, but they thought that's the explanation for the flood. Um, and they were coming up, if you do the numbers, they were coming up to the next 1,600 years. Um, sorry, 1,500 uh, 1656 years um, so they wanted to avoid it happening again yes they, they assumed it was an arithmetic progression it could, it could have been a geometric progression it could have been an exponential progression but they've actually missed the point 
And the, the point they've missed is not the scientific observation. <laughs> okay, why did the flood come? God chose it to happen, not because it was wicked. And why did God choose it to happen? Because the people were evil, it was a punishment. So how do you avoid the punishment coming again? Don't be evil. But what did they do? Ah, we'll carry on being evil. We'll just fix it with girders. Okay, have you ever seen people who say, you know, we are worried about uh, the effects that are happening in this world? The solution is not to change our character, but let's change something external in the world. Um, this is the generation of the flood, or rather the generation of the Migdal Bavel, who said, to avoid a flood, we don't need to change our behavior, we just need to climb up to heaven and, like, with our screwdrivers and fix it a bit. And that's Devarim Chadim, that's sharp words. So rather, why wasn't this the reaction to the first flood that we alluded to? I think it was a Qurari alluded would, to would, it earlier in, I think it was Parshish, uh, no, later in Parshish Bresha, we... Uh, we talked about how there was a... The mini-flood yeah. that swept away the, the, in the time of Enosh. Um, why wasn't this their reaction to it? Probably because... Uh, uh, good question. Uh, maybe because it wasn't devastating enough. And humanity wasn't wiped out at that point. But this time they wanted to make sure humanity's not wiped out again. Whoa, lots of questions. Yes? Didn't Hashem promise it never... Yes, good point. Hashem did promise to never have another flood. Um, which means either they didn't trust Hashem... Or they still wanted to avoid any other sort of natural disaster. Yes? What does it mean that it was sharp? Like clever. What does smochot mean? Okay, smochot means supports. Supports for the heavens to stop it shaking. What does that actually entail? I I say girders. Like they'll they'll put in steel... uh, Scaffolding. Scaffolding. To make it steady. They built a tower to be like I don't know if the tower. I don't know if the tower. Guys, guys, I don't know if the tower itself is the support system. I think the tower might be the elevator that gets them up to heaven, so they can then fix fix the heavens with their screwdrivers. Okay. Uh, why is it? I think it's it's chadim as in clever, as in thoughtful. It's also cheating. Like it's actually being sarcastic. No, no, I don't think it's being sarcastic. It's like, Totally not clever. Why is it? Oh, it's absurd. Yes. Yeah. But they're trying to be clever. Okay. okay. I, I don't think Rashi being sarcastic. I actually don't think Rashi uh, has the same concept of sarcasm as we do. <laughs> no, the reason I say that, the reason I say that is because of something yeah, in Parshas Vayeshev. Yeah. Okay, I'll leave you. I'll leave that for your homework. Where do we see in Parshas Vayeshev, <laughs> Rashi doesn't entertain the idea of sarcasm? I'll leave that for you. But funny enough, if we get there tonight, I'm not sure we will, we will come across a joke that Rashi makes. <laughs> so you could be ready for that. Yes? How, how does Rashi get this from firstly taking away an Aleph and say Chadim, and then suddenly he knows what the words they're saying are? Okay, well, Rashi's source is listed at the end of this comment of Rashi. Oh, it comes from the Midrash. So that, the, the, you know, the answer I'm going to give, we can give to many, many uh, occurrences. Rashi identifies the problem. And the Midrash supplies the answer, and he uses the Midrash to answer the problem. And what I mean is, he doesn't always use the Midrash, by any means. Um, most of what Rashi writes is copied from Beishet Rabbah, Midrash Tanchuma, or, or Gemara, one or two other places. His brilliance is his power of selection. So he identifies the problem for which we need the Midrash to answer. But we can, uh, we can go further. Uh, I can't. I can't precisely say why a Chadim is best understood as Chadim, and what's the source for that being the the Devarim Chadim that they were saying, but the Midrash does work it out. Okay, let's move on to Pasuk Bet. Vayehi b'nosa'am mi Kedem. It was when they journeyed from Kedem, v'yimtza'u vika, and they found a valley, be'eretz Shinar, in the land of Shinar, v'yeshvu sham, and they dwelt there. Says Rashi, b'nosa'am mi Kedem, shahayu yoshvim sham, they were living there. Where? In Kedem. How do we know they were living in Kedem? Very good. That's why we stress Perak Yur Pasuk Lamad, just a few Pasukim above. And that's what, if you've got the note in Rashi, he refers you to Perak Yur Pasuk Lamad, where it says, And Rashi begins to quote the Pasuk, etc. Now, the Ramban raises a question. Ramban doesn't agree with Rashi's approach here because he says that Perak Pasuk Lamad in the previous Perak was not talking about everybody. Whom was it talking about? 
The sons of Shem. So, there's a debate. Uh, the, the, the defenders of Rashi respond to the Ramban. One of the things they say is, no, because if you look at the end of the sons of uh, Yefet, which is Perak Yud Pasuk Hay, it doesn't say where they lived. And if you look at the end of the sons of Ham, in Perak Yud Pasuk Kaf, it also doesn't say where they lived. So when it says at the end of the Bnei Shem, where they lived, whom is it actually referring to? Everyone. Everyone. It's not, this is Shem, because we've had Chom's place, and we've had Yafet's place. We haven't had Yafet's place. We haven't had Chom's place. Now we have a place. So it's for everyone. And furthermore, another aspect of the debate between Rashi and Ramban is the timing of that verse, Lamed. The Ramban says, even though he normally says the Torah doesn't go out of order, he says when it refers to places in Perak Yud, it's talking about after they have been dispersed throughout the world. After Migdal Bava. That's where the people of Shem ended up. Rashi presumably, in fact clearly, reads Pasuk Lamad as taking place before Migdal Bava. And Har HaKedem is where everyone ended up. So when the Torah in the next parak says they journeyed from Kedem, Rashi says, well, that's good because in the previous parak we've just seen they and all of them, not just B'nai Shem, were living in Har Kedem and that was before the, the Migdal Bavel. Yes? Could Ramban say back to the, the people of Rashi, the, the defenders of Rashi that it doesn't say in the previous two, that it doesn't also say Kol Ele B'nai Yekatan and therefore that Pasuk after is actually referring to the Kol Ele. Um, it... And therefore it works. Oh, it, oh Pasuk Lamad is just referring to the B'nai Yaktan, all, all 13 of them. Or, yeah, something like that. Or, or it's, it, it limits that scope because uh, that's special. I haven't seen anyone say that, but that's probably because I haven't looked. So, um, I, maybe, I don't know. Okay. I, I didn't go through that Ramban carefully because I just wanted to mention it as a, uh, uh, a, a different point to Rashi. Yes. Um, I actually had this question last week. If you look at, interestingly, the three Pesukim that you talked about, the end of the discussion about Shem Yafed and Cham. Yes. It says different things about Mishpat Chatam. Only in, it's in Cham and Yafed that it talks about Lishnotam, but not in um, Shem. Shem. And what also does Lishnotam? Yeah, do, sorry, in Lamed Aleph. In Lamed Aleph, Eile Bnei Shem, Lishpat Chatam, Lishnotam. Ah, true, sorry. Um, but anyway, what does that mean, though, in the sense of that it talks about, like, in the languages when we just discussed that everyone had the same language? Uh, good question. What does it mean, Lushanotam, when everyone have the same language? Um, Rashi and Pasuk Kaf made some mention of that. They are divided in languages and lands, which sounds like it's after Migdal Bavel, and that would fit if it weren't for what I just said about how the defenders of Rashi explain him against the Ramban. So I haven't got answers to that. I'm going to have to pause on that. I'll take that question on, on, on notice. So that was uh, the beginning of Rashi on Bet. Then Rashi continues, V'nasa'u misham latur lahem makom lahachzik et kulam. They journeyed from there to tour, to spy out or to look out for, for them a place to hold all of them. And they didn't find anywhere except Shinar. How do we know they were searching? What Rashi says they were searching. Why does Rashi say they were searching? Because what happened in the Pasuk, which presumably comes after a search, they found. They didn't say they turned up in, or they happened to be in, but they found. They found a Bikar, a valley in the land in the Eretz of Shinar. Rashi says um, the reason they ended up in Shinar was because below Matsu Ela Shinar. They were looking for a place to hold them, and Shinar was not a choice in the sense they weren't seeking Shinar, but they found Shinar to be the place that held them. Okay, then in Pasuk Gimel. By the way, I saw, asked last week. This isn't Rashi. This is Rav Hirsch. I'll just ask the question: If you want to build a tower to be very very high, do you start in a valley? No. Okay, just remember that point and I'll come back to it. Pasuk Gimel. Vayomru. And they said, Ish el re'ehu. A person to their friend. Hava. I'll leave that untranslated. Nilbana levenim. Let us make bricks. It really, it's sort of make bricks out of bricks. 
the nisrafa lesrefa, and burn them in burning. Rashi will help us a little bit. Vatahilahem halavena laeven, and the bricks will be for stones. Vahachemar, the translators bitumen, hayalahem lachomer. We'll leave Rashi to translate lachomer. So, lots of things to say about that. Start at the beginning. Ish el re'ehu. Says Rashi, Uma la Uma, nation to nation. Mitzrayim la Kush, for Kush la Foot, or Foot la Canaan. Mitzrayim would say to Kush, and Kush would say to Foot, and Foot would say to the Canaan. Who are those four? The three children of Four children of Ham. If you go back to Yud Lama, sorry, Yud Vav. So first of all, why does Rashi say it doesn't mean person to person, it means nation to nation? And the answer, perhaps, is it doesn't really make sense to say person to person. We're talking about a gigantic enterprise where all these nations come together. And if one person says to another person, um, let's build a tower, it's really not going to make a difference. It doesn't really make sense. But what's going to happen is all these nations are going to get together. How many nations were there? Seventy. And they're going to collectively decide to build a tower. So it makes much more sense that its nations agree with other nations to build the tower. It's also, because of what we'll see at the end of the story, it's, uh, well, when we get there, hopefully we'll remember to relate back to here, and there's a match. Next thing, how many nations were there? Good, I just said that. So why does Rashi pick these four as an example? The four B'nai Cham, but not in the right order. Because if you remember the order in which they were born, it was Kush, or Mitzrayim, Ufut, or Canaan. And here Mitzrayim comes first. Why do they mention Mitzrayim, first of all, when it comes to building things with stones and cement? They're good at that. They're good at that. How do we know they're good at that? Yeah, okay. What else do you know about Mitzrayim? Stones, cement, slaves. That's what Jews. Thank you. That's what happened when Am Yisrael were there. They had to build things. Exactly with these materials. So maybe, I would keep saying maybe, because this is one suggestion, that that's why Rashi starts with Mitzrayim. Because Mitzrayim, we know, are the people of bricks and cement. Because we know through our own suffering that they were the people of whom, with whom you associate very explicitly at the beginning of Shemot, bricks and cement. So we'll put Mitzrayim first, and then we'll put the rest of Mitzrayim's close relatives to tell us this story. Um, and also, it's interesting we mention Bnei Cham. Um, we don't mention Bnei Yafet and Bnei Shem in this little example that Rashi brings. Why? Perhaps because Rashi is of the opinion that the Bnei Cham are the worst of the groups in this story. As we learned before, Cham was not very nice, certainly compared to Yafet and Shem, who were much better. Um, we've also already met who is the individual who leads this whole plan? Nimrod. Nimrod. And who was Nimrod? He was, well, he was a grandson of Ham. He was the son of Cush. So it sort of fits that if you're going to give examples of nations that are leading this plan, it will be Egypt and Cush and, and, and the parents of Nimrod and etc. Okay, next Rashi is on the word Hava. What does Hava mean? What could Hava mean? It could mean come. What else could it mean? Lahavi, although it's actually to bring. Does it mean come? Does it mean bring? Hava nilbana levenim. Bring will make bricks. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. So Rashi says, Hizminu atzmechem. It means prepare yourselves. Kol haba. Loshan Hazmanahu. Wherever you find Hava, it's an expression of preparing, except for the case we're going to get to where it's not. But wherever, <laughs> but as the, the Rashi defends it, why it's not. Uh, if you're interested in my uh, talking in riddles, it's in Posit Zion. Anyway, so uh, Hava does mean prepare yourself. Shemechinim atzmam, that people should prepare themselves. Umit havrim, and join together, lamalacha, for work, or la or for plan, or la masa, or for carrying. Hava, hezminu, then he translates. Hava simply means hezminu, and then he brings a French word, afarelia, 
which I think is the old French for préparer, which is the English, in English it means prepare. Who's a French scholar here? <laughs> yeah? He's joking. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not an expert in old French, but apparently aphorelia is translated as prepare. So, that, that is actually quite a lot of words to say that hava does not mean come, because it doesn't make sense. It does not mean bring, because hava nilbana levenim doesn't make sense. But rather, it means prepare. Prepare yourselves, and then we'll do what we're about to do. And he tells us that prepare, that hava always has this meaning of preparing for work or plan or carrying a particular type of labor. So it doesn't just mean prepare in a very, very vague sense. It's more precise than that. Prepare for a certain type of activity. And in this case, prepare for the making the bricks and the doing, getting other, other materials ready. Well, how do we know that Nimrod was the leader of the um, 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 Rashi says so, if that's what you're asking. How yeah, did, it's not in the shot of the Pesukim, is it? It's not in the shot of the Pesukim, no. But Rashi says that's the reason he's called Nimrod. And I'm just looking for the place. Yeah, it goes through the B'nai Cham, and then Nimrod gets about four Pesukim all by himself about what sort of person he was. Um, oh, here it is in Pasuk Chet, Yud Chet. Uh, Rashi, Rashi explains that's why he's called Gibor. Um, I don't know if you were there that week. You can listen on the podcast. But if you look at Rashi on Pasuk Chet, uh, and Pasuk Tet. That's how he understands why Nimrod is described as Hashem. It's not a good description. He's doing bad things. He's encouraging people to rebel against Hashem. When was there a rebellion against Hashem? Migdal Baba. Bless you. Says Rashi on Levenim. She'ein avanim bavavel shehi bikar. Because, because there are not stones in Bavel, because it is a valley. Now, I'm not quite sure why a valley is stoneless, but Rashi has to explain why they needed to make bricks. Because what would you normally build a tower with, especially in the ancient world? Stones. You'd hunt around for stones. You can see, not in this country, because there's not much archaeology, but in other countries, you can see in Israel, for instance, things that were build, built with stones, not with bricks. Maybe um, stones which have been shaped in a certain way or maybe stones which haven't been shaped in a certain way. But they had to make the effort to make bricks to serve as stones. Why? So Rashi tells us because they didn't have stones. At this point, I'll just share with you the Rav Hirsch. And I always say this is a Rashi share. I'm not going to bring out the fortune, but this is just so good. Because, says Rav Hirsch, the whole... Uh, emphasis of this pasuk is they wanted to be self-sufficient. They didn't want to use stones because who made the stones? God. So they wanted to use the materials that they had built, made, used, made, created themselves because it, the whole thing was to say we are as powerful as God. So we're not going to rely on anything God had done for them. Which is why where did they build it? In a valley. Because if they build it on a mountain, then who's responsible for the first thousand feet? God, but they don't want that. So Dafka they build in a valley. That's Rav Hirsch. It's not Rashi at all. Rashi says they would have had stones. They would have used stones had they had stones around to use. But they didn't. That's why they had to bake bricks. Then Rashi says, V'nisrafa l'srefa, kach osin halavenim. This is how you make bricks. Shakarin tiolush, tiols, which is old French for the English tiles. Sorfim otan bekivshan. You burn them in a kiln. And really Rashi's explaining one word in particular. He's saying this is normal. This is what you normally do to make bricks. But he's explaining which word? The second sreifa. Exactly, the second sreifa. Because it's a bit clumsy in the original. We will burn for burning. What does that mean? So it means we will burn them in the place of sreifa, which Rashi has explained as bekivshan, in the kiln. And finally, Rashi on Lachomer. Says Rashi, Latuach Hakir. What's Latuach Hakir? To um, plaster the walls. So we have Levenim, which are in place of stones, and we have Chemar to serve Lachomer, to plaster the walls. The point this Rashi is making is a grammatical point that Lachomer understands Rashi is not a noun. 
it's not, uh, it's not, even though Chaymar and Chomer obviously sound similar, and others want to explain Chomer as a noun, Rashi does not. It's an act of Chamira, I think would be the grammar. It's an act of doing the Chomering. So Rashi explains that Chomering, excuse my bastardized grammar, is Latuach Hakir, is to plaster the walls. Yes? Um, does the mention of bricks and Plaster. Yeah, plaster. Does that indicate anything about what, what the function of the building would be? Or that's just the way you build a building? I think it's the latter. I think it's the way you build a building. Um, Rashi doesn't derive anything yeah. from there. Rashi's just explaining how this matches up with the building process, basically. Why you need bricks and what Lachome is. So I don't think so. And I'm guessing that even at that time, it wasn't just enough to build walls. You had to plaster the walls as well. That was like how you build something. Yes? Um, for those, I understand why Rashi does it, but for those that disagree and say that la Chomer is a noun, isn't that double, then it, would, then it says Chomer twice? What, what's no, it, it's Chaymar and Chomer, which are not quite the same thing. Uh, we'll not. use Chaymar as Chomer. That's, a, that's, okay. They're not what's the same the first thing. and what was the second? I think, I think bitumen and plaster. Okay. Okay? And they're both related to Chomer, meaning stuff, meaning material stuff. Okay, and then they say in Pasuk Dalad, Vayomru, they said, Hava nivna lanu ir umigdal. So the same Hava, which Rashi doesn't explain this time, but perhaps because he thinks he's already done it in the previous verse. So they said, prepare yourselves, using Rashi's own translation, nivna lanu ir, we will build for ourselves a city, umigdal, and a tower. Notice there's two things. And that's no great Kiddush, it's just we don't normally read the Pesukim carefully. They build a city and they build a tower. And its head will be in heaven. And we will make for ourselves a name. Lest we, well, okay, I'll jump the gun a little bit. It's usually translated as we will be scattered on the face of all the earth. So we want to build a city and we want to build a tower with its head in heaven, whether they took that literally or not. The... Um, the people of Eretz Israel, before the Canaanites were described as having towers with their heads in heaven, and Rashi says that's an exaggeration. It's not clear whether this is an exaggeration or they actually meant it literally, if they thought it was uh, doable. And they wanted to make themselves a name, and the purpose was penna futs al penei kala aretz. Now let's look at Rashi on penna futs on Pasuk Dalet. Shalo yavi aleinu shum makya lahafitsanu mikan so that he should not bring against us any plague to scatter us from here. So some want to say that this Rashi is based on his understanding, our understanding of the word pen. What does the word pen mean? Lest. Lest. Okay, who uses lest in common parlance? Except me. <laughs> okay, and what does lest mean? What is, just in case. Just in case. Prevent. To prevent. Okay. So the point is, pen, there's a few words in Hebrew which can be like, so as not to happen. But pen has the implication of we don't want it to happen. Lest is, I want to avoid something bad. Uh, ulai and, um, that's probably the best other example. Uh, there are others which don't necessarily have the negative connotation. Now, nafuts. If you translate it as scattered, I suppose it, it sort of sounds something we don't want to happen. But you could translate it as spread out. Now, does it make sense to say they don't want to spread out across the face of all the earth? Would spreading out across the face of all the earth be a good thing or a bad thing? Good. Yes, you probably think it's a good thing. I mean, most nations want to spread out. Most nations want to grow in number. So inevitably they spread out. So nafuts would probably be a good thing. So why is Penn there saying we don't want to nafuts? That's Rashi. So that's why he explains Nafutz doesn't isn't a neutral spreading out. What they're scared of, what are they scared of? A maker lahafitzenu mikan. That Hashem will intervene and send a plague to force us out of here. So Rashi's explaining why they had the mentality that Nafutz was a bad thing. And that's, that's generated by the word pen. They clearly don't want to do Nafutz. So Rashi explains, but they're scared of being forced to spread out against their will.
Pasuk Hey. Vayered Hashem, Hashem descended, Lirot et Ha'ir, to see the city, the Etamigdal and the tower, Asher Banu Beneha Adam, which the sons of men had built. Now, any problems with Vayered Hashem, Lirot? You're nodding. Personification, anthropomorphism, Hashem doesn't descend. Number one, he doesn't have a physical form to go from high to low. Number two, why does God have to come down? To see. God is omniscient. God knows everything. So why does he need to see? Maybe because the tower is just pretty poor. He has to, you know, God, God never, never needs to come down to see anything, but the tower is just so average that he has to, I don't know. He has to come down because yeah. the tower is like on a low level. Well, it could only have been 10 to 5. Could only have been 10 to 5? It would have been more than 10 to 5. Ah, very good. Thank you, the Gemara and Sukkah. The Shekhinah doesn't dwell below yeah, 10 yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, we don't know how high this tower was. There are some great, you know, biblical uh, paintings, usually done, in fact, always done by Christians, of what the tower looked like. It looked really impressive. I'm pretty sure it was above 10 Tavachim. It would have been pretty pathetic if they built this tower to reach the heaven. They didn't get it more higher than 10 Tavachim. Okay, so... Let's see what Rashi says. Well, I let's see what. There's a problem here of saying that God descends because they're trying to reach God and Shalayim. So to say that God came down from there seems to be somewhat proving their point that they could reach him up there. They could well, or they couldn't. Yeah, I would say, I, I've never noticed that before, and it's not Rashi, but it might be sort of laughing at them. Yeah. You wanted to get all the way up to reach me. Look, if I come to see you, I have to go all the way down because you're so far below me. Anyway, that's not how Rashi understands it. Let's look at Rashi. This was not needed. So those who were worried about this idea that God needs to come down to see because he couldn't see otherwise, don't worry, says Rashi. But it comes to teach This comes to teach judges but they should not declare somebody guilty, the person whom they're judging, until they have seen the Yavinu and they have understood. And that comes from the Midrash. So Hashem, of course, doesn't need to come down. Interesting, Russia doesn't really deal with the anthropomorphism, but it's sort of covered by what he says. But in particular, he doesn't need to see. That's the point that you, uh, might, you might wonder, does he need to see? Lo The first thing Rashi says is he doesn't need to see. So why does he see? So this is an amazing thing about Kaddish Baruch Hu, that he makes an effort, as it were, to teach a lesson to people who are sometime in the future, probably, that if you're going to judge something, you need to see and understand, if you are a human judge. Of course, if you are God, you don't need to do that, but he's demonstrating that you do uh, to teach others. Now, if you have a look in... Um, Parshas Vayera and Yeah, Perak Yudchet Pasuk Kaf Aleph Perak Yudchet Pasuk Kaf Aleph I think we're going to have time to ask the question and we'll answer it next week <laughs> So there Hashem is dealing with the people of Sodom who are pretty bad uh, Hashem said the cry of Saddam and Amara. It doesn't say about the, what the, happens to the cry. Rashi says the cry has come to me. Because it's great. And their sin. Because it's very heavy. Then what does Hashem say? I will descend. And I will see. If they've done like what the cry that's come to me. Rashi there says in Kaf Aleph, Eredna, Eredana, Lamaladainim, Shalo Yafsiku Dine Nafashot, Ela Buriya. That judges cannot pass a death penalty except by seeing. Hakol, Kamosha Parashti, Baparashat Hafalaga. Everything's like I explained in the section about the dispersal, which is what we just learnt. Then Rashi says there in Vayera, Deva Acher, another explanation, Erda na lasov ma'asehem. I will descend 
doesn't mean I would ascend to have a look. I would ascend to the end of their deeds. In other words, I will extrapolate what's going to happen as a consequence of what they're starting to do. It's interesting that Rashi says something similar, but a little bit different here. What's different? Well, he doesn't bring a Dva Acher. He doesn't bring another explanation. So Rashi in Vayera says two things. First explanation, to teach judges that they can only judge capital cases, with seeing. And then he says, another explanation, I will descend, that's a different type of descending, to the end of their deeds, to see what's going to be the consequence. Now, Rashi doesn't bring a second explanation, but he actually, in our case, he actually adds something into the first explanation, the, the one and only explanation. What does he add in the single explanation here in Noach, that is not there in the first explanation in Vayera. Very good. Understanding. Thank you. I was wondering if my question was too convoluted, but you got it. So here we see Vayera Hashem And actually they're the same thing. When it means in Rashi's in Vayera, the second explanation is I will descend to see what's going to happen here. It's, I, will un- I have to descend to see and to understand. What does understand mean? It's not just seeing. You can't just like look and say, oh, look, they're building a tower. I have to understand the consequences of building the tower. So the first point to say is, well, the, the Rashi's are clearly related. How do I know they're clearly related? Because Rashi himself says so. Rashi in Vayera gives us like a, a link. You, know, you would click on the link and you jump back to Rashi and Noah. First point. Second point is the Rashis obviously are similar, but are structured differently. But in fact, they match up. But in which case we're left with, okay, but why the difference? So, uh, running out of time, so I'm going to offer an explanation. Because the difference here is, if you come and see the tower being built, you have to look and you have to understand. Because what they're doing right now is not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily bad. They're building a tower. So you have to, if you want to judge it, this is not Hashem himself, but this is the message that Hashem is giving to future human judges. You have to see for yourself, and you have to think what are the consequences you have to understand. When it came to the people of Saddam, you didn't need to do that. What's the difference? Because the people of Saddam were bad already. The people of Saddam we already know were very wicked. The Torah says they were very wicked. So the people of Saddam, all the judge has to do is see. He can actually see for himself the terrible consequences of what they're doing. So that's why, when the case of Saddam, Rashi doesn't need to say Be'avinu, because seeing is enough. But Rashi is concerned in terms of the limit, in terms of the lesson for future judges, there has to be an uh, understanding of the consequences as well. So in that case, in the people of Saddam, he just says the judges need to see, and then he puts in a separate section, and in general, you need to see the end of their, gener- the end of their deeds. In other words, you have to see the consequences. Here, in the case of Migdal Babel, it's not presented as two separate things because the judges have to do both. In the first instance, they see the tower being built, the Yavino, and they have to understand it. We will stop there. The very next Rashi is the joke that I promised you. We'll get to that in Yitz Hashem next week. Is it about-